welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. It's February 2021, and that means it's once again time for Roots Tech, the world's largest genealogy conference. Well, this year, for the first time, the event will be 100% virtual, and the event director, Jen Allen, is here to tell us all about it. Something else that has experienced a lot of change is DNA testing. And Diane Southerd, your DNA guide, will be here to help us figure out if we should retake our DNA test. In our best websites for genealogy segment, the Deputy Chief Genealogical Officer of FamilySearch International, Tom Reed, is going to be here to tell us about the Freedmen's Bureau records. And these are available both at FamilySearch.org and the Freedmen's Bureau Project website. And then we're going to wrap things up at the offices of Family Tree Magazine, where Amanda Epperson, the e-learning producer at Family Tree University, will tell us about another exciting upcoming event, the Family Tree University Winter 2021 Virtual Conference. But first, let's hear about your genealogical journeys. And this month, friend of the show, Shannon Combs Bennett, shares her own census mystery. Have you ever searched a line, felt great about all the information you covered, and then learned you spent all that time on the wrong family? Well, if you haven't, you're lucky. I have done this a couple times, but each time I do learn something valuable. One of my first stumbling blocks, which led to a great lesson in using census records, was for George Bennett. Now, I had his marriage record his death record, him on the census with his wife, and even a picture of him and his father, also George Bennett, in 1902. What I didn't know was his mother's name. When I first investigated this problem, I was not able to get George's death certificate from Florida, so the only information I had was from his marriage record. On it, he states he was the son of George Bennett. He was born in Manhattan on 9 February 1897. Great! I just need to order his birth certificate from the municipal archives. One snag, though, there were two babies named George Bennett, born in Manhattan, on that date. So, one was born to a woman named Catherine Golding, the other to Augusta Yunka. Which one do I choose? To be honest, it was a 50-50 shot. I was going to get it right, but I was confident. Why? Well, because I knew my George Bennett married a woman named Ruby, who lived in Hartford, Connecticut in the 1920 census. Then, believe it or not, I found a George Bennett living with his parents, George and Augusta, in Hartford, Connecticut at the same time. To me, I knew right then my George must be the son of Catherine Golding. It all fit together. But I couldn't go further back. And something nagged at me. It wasn't until I started researching Ruby's line that I noticed the real problem. In the 1920 census, her brother Alton Taylor was listed in her home and in the home of her parents. A double enumeration? Really? Then I investigated the siblings for the two Bennett families. That is when I realized I'd made a mistake. Surnames were not appearing like they should with the forward research. You see, my father-in-law knew who his first and second cousins were, and they were not in my tree. Uh Uh-oh. Needless to say, I went back to the original records, and it was in the original records that I pieced it all back together. 
George was the son of Augusta Yanka and George Bennett, after all. How could George Bennett and his brother-in-law Alton Taylor be enumerated two times in the 1920 census? My two best guesses are they were visiting George's parents the day the census taker came, and they were enumerated as being in the house. Or... One family enumerated the son as living with them, not realizing they were only supposed to state the names of the people in the house on the census date. Weird, but my best guess. From the census, I know that George and Ruby lived at 23 Harbinson Avenue, Hartford, Connecticut, and they were enumerated on January 7th. George and Augusta lived at 45 Summer Street, Hartford, Connecticut, and were enumerated on January 6th. I plugged it into Google Maps, and it's just a little less than four miles apart. Not right next door, but easy to get to via public transportation or driving. Alton and Ruby's parents, Benjamin and Annie Taylor, enumerated on the 12th of January, lived on their farm in Coventry, Connecticut, about 20 miles away. George and Alton both worked for the Underwood Typewriter Factory in Hartford. Doing a little digging, I found the address, 56 Arbor Street, for the Underwood Typewriter Factory. It's not far from where the Georges live, which makes sense that Alton would live in Hartford and not have to travel 20 miles into town every day in 1920 to work at the factory. Today, the old factory is the home of the real art ways. I also discovered a New York Times article from August 11th, 1919, during my research that announced the closure of the Hartford, Connecticut Underwood Typewriter Company plant due to strikes. It must have been back up and running again by the time this census was taken in the next January. Last year, over 32,000 people from 55 countries and 49 states in the United States flocked to the Roots Tech Conference in Salt Lake City. This year, many more are going to be flocking to Roots Tech, but not in person. And here to tell us all about Roots Tech Connect in 2021 is the event director, Jen Allen. Welcome back to the show, Jen. Hi, thank you so much. I love coming and visiting with you, Lisa, and all of your followers and fans. I love it. Well, you know, Jen, I was thinking back on Roots Tech 2020, and we really didn't realize at that time that was really just about the last major genealogy event that was held before COVID-19 started really closing down all of our public gatherings. It just seems like ages ago, doesn't it? It, it really does. It almost is, is crazy to think how many people we had in one building, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and we knew, you know, we all heard kind of things going on over in China or other parts of the world. Um, and we really were one of the last event even in the event world yes kind of that was one of the last weekends uh that anybody was holding mass gatherings like that so it is it is it's crazy we we were lucky really really lucky to be able to still have it very very lucky and you know but last year you were celebrating a wonderful new decade gosh a 10-year anniversary with the conference but this year you're celebrating something kind of new, which is this brand new format. So tell us about how it's in a virtual event this year. Yeah, you know, with the pandemic, we knew early on uh, that we were going to have to make this choice. And so excited uh, to introduce this new virtual experience to everybody. I'll say 
Um, you know, I, I, I'm an events person. I love to be around people. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was a little sad at first to kind of make that decision and put the stake in the ground. But I will say that the things that we have seen and the opportunities that this constraint is causing, um, it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, even though we are sort of forced into it, uh, there are some really big things I think we're all going to learn and love. Um, don't get me wrong. Someday we're ready to get back together and have the party again. But uh, this is it's opening the door to a lot of opportunities. Well, and I imagine it's going to continue to evolve even when we get to finally get back together in person, which I can't wait. You know, you'll probably still be able to bring with you all these wonderful things you've been developing for this year. But let's talk about one of people's favorite things, which is, of course, the genealogy training sessions. How's that yeah. going to look this year in 2021? Well, it's all going to be virtual. You know, it, it, what, what's great about this is um, you now have sort of a what we're calling a learning library that you can go in now and choose these classes and watch them at your leisure. I mean, obviously, hopefully a lot of people would be there for those three days watching, but we're creating this virtual massive library that will be available all year long, you know, so come and enjoy, start creating your playlist. We can talk about that a little bit later, but you, you can start, you know, starring the classes that you want to watch, but we know there's no way you'll be able to get it all done in three days. Right. So now exactly. with this virtual experience, learning is totally different because you can come back to it. Um, no more furiously trying to take your notes, right? You can go back and reference what you learned. It, it, it's it's going to be pretty exciting. I can't wait to see how it works and how it resonates and if everybody, you know, really kind of gravitates to it. So in the past, we've typically had like a 50-minute uh, in-person session, perhaps in a ballroom at the conference center. Is the length going to stay the same? Is it going to be shorter or longer? How's that going to change? Yeah, great question. So we have been trying to in innovate in this space all year long. So what we refer to as transforming the learning space within our industry um, is really coming to fruition at this event. So you're right. We had long-form classes, 50 to 60 minutes long, um, but we are reducing that this year. And really, you're going to see most classes, the majority of classes will now be around the 20 minutes. Um, mark, which will be a really different experience. But I'll tell you what, when you start thinking about a virtual world, um, I don't know what it is, but I, I have a hard time sitting there and watching something for an hour. So we knew that it needed to be shorter, a little more engaging, um, but we also knew it needed to be just as deep as what we used to have. You know, we have hardcore genealogists, very experienced and professional level that we know 20 minutes just won't cut it, right? So some classes will be long still, or you might see three classes in a series. And um, so they're 20 minutes, but they're meant to kind of be one after the other so that you get that full kind of more deep um, and rich experience. So Lots of shorter, we even have um, tips and tricks, which will be around three minutes, you know, two to three to four minutes in length where um, anyone can get on and just watch just a really quick snippet of little tips and tricks that you can do within the industry. 
So that gets me thinking about from a logistics standpoint, you know, I'm sure you think about this when you are moving people around in person. Now you're moving them through the website. And I imagine this takes quite a sophisticated search feature so that people can efficiently find the topics, the speakers that they want to hear. So that brings my question to maybe just a little tidbit about how the navigation will work, if that will look different. And also, are we still using the mobile app? Yeah. Oh, great question. Good, good. So what was crazy is right now we would normally be stressed about how many chairs in a classroom and where everyone's going to line up and, you know, where the food cart is going to go. (laughs) But all of that stress is gone. And now it's all put in the platform. Like you said, how do we think that people will intuitively know how to navigate and find what they're hoping to find or uh, what they're looking for. So familysearch.org has some incredible engineers. They would have to, right? That's their full-time job. Um, And we have enlisted the best of the best to come in. And I'll tell you what, it's no short of a miracle um, because we really started doing this like in September, which is not very long. Um, but they have just come up with an incredible platform that is easy to use. Um, I, I will just quickly mention that we were searching. We were searching from every company possible to, who to purchase and who to work with on these platforms that already exist. There's hundreds of them, thousands of them almost. Um, but in the end, we decided to build our own so it would absolutely serve our customer. We have a wide range of ages and expertise within this industry, and we wanted to make sure that it was really speaking to them. So that is why we decided to build custom, which is not an easy feat, by the way. But it is pretty incredible the way it's all coming together. There's incredible search features, but you can also just kind of click around in different categories. Um, You can, we have what, this is new this year, it's called a Guide Me series or section where if you don't know where to start, you can go in there and there's a getting started section. There's even one for archive. Um, There's discovery kind of things in there, but you click on that getting started and it's going to take you through kind of a journey um, and show you kind of lists of classes within that category that makes sense. So just the the way you'll be able to navigate through and find hopefully what you're looking for is going to be pretty incredible. But yes, all logistics are now virtual online. It's crazy. So that's through the website. Will you still be updating and doing a new app this year? Yes. Thank you for reminding me about that second question. Sure. Um, we actually will not have a mobile app this year. Okay. Um, so this year, everything is online. On It's web-based. But it is all customized or enhanced for mobile viewing as well. So you can do it on your phone. You just have to have your Chrome or Safari or whatever uh, browser you use um, up on your phone, but no app. So it's a good question. So you mentioned that people will be watching throughout that normal time frame that they would have been there in person. Tell us a little bit about the registration, the cost. I've heard that maybe there is no cost, but also are there different packages in terms of access during that designated three or four day time versus after the event? Great question. The conference Roots Tech is 100% free this year, um, which is also an incredible change. And 
Um, we knew going virtual, that was really the only way we could actually make it global as well. And going kind of global was our number one goal with switching to this virtual experience. So it's all free. So congratulations and welcome and tell everybody you know. <laughs> There's no reason not to come and check it out. So with that, we, you know, by, by trying to make it global, we have people coming from all over the world. And a lot of the experiences you will see will be in 11 different languages. Um, so the main stage, the navigation on the website, um, and then the classes will really be dependent on which classes we received in language. We didn't really go and translate anything, um, but everyone taught classes in their own native tongue or wherever that they were from. And so we have a lot of classes in 11 languages plus. I mean, we actually have classes in 20-plus languages. I can't even remember the number. but So it's pretty incredible. Again, that's one example of deciding to go virtual um, has really opened the door for us to really, truly be a global experience. It's going to be incredible. So they still need to register. That'll get them that free registration, which is, which is fantastic. How long will they have access to these videos? We are not cutting off access. So whether you come the three days or three months later, it's, it's open to everybody. That whole learning library that we talked about earlier will be available to everybody for free all year long is what we're saying right now. Um, we, who knows? We may even keep some of the classes for longer. But next year at Roots Tech, we'll start looking at what to freshen up or switch out or change, change a little bit. So all year long. But there are definite benefit to showing up live during the event that won't be able to continue for, for the whole year, but the classes will. Oh, okay. So let's wrap with that. You mentioned, you know, wanting to make it an engaging experience. What are some of these yeah. elements? I bet you've got some, a few things up your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the big things that we knew, I mean, we, we called it Roots Tech Connect. That's pretty bold already, right? Um, we knew that the most important thing was really to help people make connections. Um, we've been sitting in a lot of virtual conferences in the last year just to learn and watch. And those conferences that don't have any interaction feel pretty stagnant, you know? Mm-hmm. There's, you know there's people watching, but you just you don't get to feel that energy. And we really, really felt that was important. So the platform, part of what they've been working so hard is a huge kind of chat feature is what we're calling it where at any time you can connect with people. Now there's a, a huge variety of ways or, or groups of people you connect with. One of them is, you know, all those 800-plus volunteers we've always had at the event wearing those annoying blue shirts that say, ask me anything. Those people will still be there for you. So there will be this, this place omnipresent on the website where you can always go and ask anything of our volunteers, whether it's a genealogical question or, you know, what do you have for DNA or help me find the ancestry booth, you know, whatever it might be, we're there to help. But then there's also ways for you to connect with other attendees and chat with them. There will also be ways to connect with some of the presenters or with the exhibitors. That will be a feature as well. Um, There will also be kind of chat rooms, we're calling them, with like-minded people. So, you know, you you as an attendee can create a chat room or we might, you know, create a few to get it going as well. But there might be like a Jewish Jewish genealogy chat room where 
you can go in and either ask questions or just have a conversation with some people. And so this chatting, connecting feature is really, really big. Um, not to mention, we also are bringing the Relatives at Roots Tech experience to this virtual experience. So if you've been to Roots Tech before, you know how fun that is to find your actual living cousins. Um, and that will be part of this one as well. Who knows, you might actually meet a cousin in like, I don't know, Ireland. This year. <laughs> so. How fun. Well, okay, so are we still headed to rootstech.org to get our registration for this free event this year? Absolutely, yep. You go to rootstech.org. All the information is there. Here in a few weeks, well, you know, right before the event, um, a couple of weeks before, you'll see that page transform into our new platform. Um, but right now, all the information is there for you as well. It's a really simple registration this year that will only take you 30 seconds. Oh, well, how fun. Jen, thank you so much for giving us a preview, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody over there at uh, Roots Tech Connect. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So perhaps you have tested at Ancestry DNA or 23andMe. Uh, maybe you did that a few years ago. Well, have you ever wondered if your results are still up to date? I mean, do you need to retest or is it worth buying another kit when you see them on sale? Well, our DNA expert, Diane Southern, is here to help you determine whether or not you should retake that genetic genealogy test. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for asking this great question. Well, you know, it's hard to believe that it's been, what, almost 14 years since the autosomal DNA testing, you know, first hit the direct-to-consumer market. Gosh, that was back in 2007. Have these tests changed a lot since then? I'm guessing maybe they have. <laughs> you are absolutely right. Of course, yes, they've changed so much. I can't even believe, honestly, um, the early results compared to what we get these days. So so that's the short answer. Yes, absolutely, they've changed. <laughs> so back then, were we even getting our genetic ancestry? I mean, what did they look like then, and, and how does that compare to what we're getting out of these tests today? Right. Well, so the early days, they were able to break down your ethnicity into three categories. They could tell you if you were European, Asian, or African. <laughs> oh, wow. And I know. And can you imagine we were so excited about that? We we're like, oh, my gosh, they can tell me if I'm European. <laughs> and now we're upset because they've missed like 3% of our Irish. Right. So, yes, they changed a lot. The good news is, for the most part, um, those updates that have happened periodically over the years are completely able to be done with the data that they have. So it's less of a let's test new and different DNA markers and more of a let's go back and reanalyze our current data now that we have more information. So what does that look like practically? I mean, do they go back and kind of reprocess that sample you sent them? Are they able to take what little information was retrieved the first time when the sample was done and then somehow reprocess that? How does that work? Right. So it's kind of a combination of both things. So if you were one of the early adopters, 2007, first one in the door, then your DNA sample has probably been reanalyzed. They went back into the freezer where they kept your extracted DNA, they pulled it out, and they reran it. But they did that all complimentary for free, essentially, because it was helping them as much as it was helping you. It was helping them build their database, helping them build their systems. And so as long as it made sense for the company to do that, they were doing it. But as the database is 
have gotten bigger and their techniques have gotten better, then they've decided they're not going to do that anymore. And so some of the companies, uh, most pointedly 23andMe, have outrightly said, hey, if you want the best of what we're going to offer, you're going to have to upgrade and it's going to cost you. So you can keep your current results and maybe we'll make some incremental updates. But if you want the best that we have to offer, you're just going to need to take a new test. Oh, interesting. And they would, I assume, tell you whether you fall in that category. There must have been some point along the the path from 2007 where if you were before this date, you need to do it. If you're after this date, you don't. Did they just tell you that through your account? Exactly, for sure. So you can find out what version of the test you have within your account, and then they will tell you, hey, if you're below this version, then you're going to need to retest, essentially. But so far, they're the only company that's come out and said that. All the other companies are still using whatever data they have from you. They're just performing an additional function in the analysis stage they call imputation. So imputation essentially is the process of determining what DNA markers you may have based on the DNA markers of other people who have tested who are similar to you. So you can think about it. I don't know if you've seen this, Lisa. It's like a it's gone around the internet a several times, but it's like a paragraph and you're supposed to like read it and figure out like the edit it essentially, figure out what's wrong with the paragraph. Mm-hmm. And most people that read it don't see anything wrong with it. Like there's nothing wrong with the paragraph. And so then you're like, huh, well, I don't know what's wrong with it. And then you scroll down and it points out all of the words that were left out of this paragraph. Oh wow. Yeah. And you read it and you're like, wait a second, how what? Well, that word wasn't there, and yet I saw it. I was sure I read it. Like, I understood the paragraph perfectly. And it's because our brains are really good at imputation. They're really good at recognizing patterns. So if words are left out of a sentence, we've read enough sentences in our lives that we know what word belongs there, and our brain just fills it in automatically. Well, that explains a lot about my writing, but... (laughs) (laughs) Now, something that is so interesting that they can do all this, we hear about a chip and that these chips change. What are they talking about with that? And is that something we have to be worried about? Right. So a chip is just the name of the kind of technology they use to do your DNA test. So every chip contains a certain number of data points that they're testing. So there's about 700,000 data points that each company is testing, but they're not the same. Like, Different Mm. companies have chosen different data points for different reasons, and so there are differences. So for years, we've been able to transfer our DNA from one company to another. So you get tested at Ancestry, you can transfer your DNA, just the results, not the physical sample, into MyHeritage, and they can analyze it. But how are they analyzing it if you didn't take their test? It means you're missing data, and you have some extra, but The point is you're missing data. So how can you possibly be analyzed according to their system? And that's what imputation does. It Mm -hmm. looks at the data you do have. Then it looks at the information they've generated in their database. And it's basically, oh, well, if we see this genetic pattern and you're missing these two in the middle, everybody else has these two values right here. We're going to put them in for you. So it's a bit of guesswork, but it sounds like it's scientifically based in that it's probably pretty accurate. 
Yes. So when I first started learning about this, when the companies were really getting into transferring, I actually visited with all of the lead technology scientists at our companies. And I was like, I don't believe you. (laughs) How can this possibly be good science? You know, how can you just make up data for people? And all of them with their big fat PhDs and all of their experience and training were like, no, 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 Diane, this works. This totally works. And so I I guess when people ask me, do I need to be retested because Ancestry's upgraded their chip 14 times since I last took a test? Mm-hmm. And my answer is no, you don't. They're, they're telling us we don't need to. But I can't help but think that it can't hurt, right? Right. So if you really want it to be what? all you and the most current, then if you can afford to do it, and there's a sale and you want to get a kit, go for it. But we're not really missing anything big if we don't right now. Exactly. And if you think about what do you want to get out of your DNA test? What's your goal? Mm -hmm. If your goal is to learn a little bit about your ethnicity, about your family history, you know, ethnically speaking, you're taking another test is not going to make that much difference. If you're thinking about, I want DNA matches, I want to find my relatives, I'm going to fill in my ancestors, it's not going to make that much difference. But if you're some kind of purist or you just like a really good scientific research goal, then yeah, get yourself tested again, compare your two tests and see if you can find any differences. Well, my last question would be, we we hear more and more about the health testing. When it comes to the ancestry side versus the health side, is one of them moving faster than the other in terms of its evolution? Well, that is an interesting question, and it it does pose this question about imputation, right? The whole purpose of health testing is that you're finding the marker that's different than everyone else. Right. So there are different health markers than ancestry markers. So they probably have figured this out, and I'm going to just speak off the cuff here, but at Ancestry DNA, they just barely cut their health product. They decided it wasn't worth it for them. So they've, they've dropped out of that market. And so my heritage is still in the health market. So is 23andMe. So there are some very specific health-related markers. And at my heritage, if you want the health test, you have to test with them. They mm-hmm. won't impute that data. So that's that answer. Like, they know that they have to look for specific data that has to be yours. So if you want a health test, you're going to have to physically test with the company. Well, that sure makes sense. We, you know, we draw a lot of conclusions from the health results. So I would yeah. imagine you'd want them as accurate as possible. And I thought, did think it was really interesting that Ancestry did step out of that market. So I guess also maybe the answer right now is no, unless you really want to. But uh, we're going to see, I imagine, continuing changing in this arena, correct? I totally agree. And maybe let me just mention, this is one of the reasons why I recommend that people do get physically tested at each company. Mm. You can transfer for free and get the data that you want. But there is an element of having your actual DNA sample with each company because we don't know which company is going to come up with that next big thing that they will need to retest. And if your aunt or uncle has passed away, you can't get that data back. Right. So if their DNA is physically present at the company, you can always, you know, go back and retest it. Uh, it's a, it continues to be a fascinating area. Thank you so much for shedding light on it for us, Diane. It's great to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. It's been fun to talk to you, too. Well, Family Search is always busy with new and exciting records that they're bringing to genealogists, and the Freedmen's Bureau records are certainly in that category. 
So today I have invited the Deputy Chief Genealogical Officer of Family Search, Tom Reed, to join us and talk about the Freedman Bureau records and the website and everything else that we need to know to, to make the most of these records. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Well, you're always a busy guy. I know when when we see each other at conferences, you're always busy. You've been busy this week. You've been uh, going to SLIG, the uh, Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy, right? Correct. Correct. I'm I'm in this the week long, the second week of SLIG this year, um, where we're doing in-depth African-American genealogy. So I've already seen in, in the first two days references to Freedman Bureau records and how they've been so instrumental for helping people that I, you know, I'm, I'm ready to talk. <laughs> awesome. So they've been on your mind, definitely. Absolutely. And of course, you were really involved in that project, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. Let's help every, bring everybody together and sure. say, uh, let's start at the beginning, which is good in case somebody hadn't heard of these records before. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the Freedmen's Bureau was. So the Freedmen's Bureau was established shortly after the Civil War to help those newly freed enslaved individuals um, and poor white Southerners kind of get back on their feet or or start anew, start afresh. And so in 15 states in the District of Columbia, the the Department of the Army actually established these Freedmen Bureau field offices and, and local offices where if people needed assistance in any sort of way, they could come and seek help, right? And so many African-Americans, you know, who had been formerly, you know, had been enslaved now were on their own and they needed, you know, work and they needed food and they needed, you know, housing and things like that. And so they came to the Bureau seeking support and the government was there to kind of help them. And during the course of, of that help and administering that help, the government kept great records and sometimes the first records of African-Americans in this country. Um, because many had not been documented before. If they had been documented, it had been in wills and probates and estate files where it might have only been a first name or, or something like that as, as part of property, not as citizens of the United States. And so, you know, for, it, it operated from 1865 to 1872 um, and, after, and, and kind of, you know, went out of, um, out of operation it was hard to maintain, right, on that kind of a large scale. And, and so there's some other programs and things that happened after that. And, and hopefully, and, and in many instances, state governments took up, you know, the responsibility and, and carried on the work of the Freedmen's Bureau. And so it was that kind of seven year period where they were in very much operating and, and helping people all across the South. Wow. So certainly it's a wonderful resource for African-American research. You also mentioned that there were some, I'm imagining people who kind of lost everything in the war or or Southerns, um, Native Americans, maybe we're going to find kind of a mix of people in their records. You, You will, you will find many, it was called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands. Oh, That's the actual organization name. We've shortened it to Freedmen's Bureau. But that that says a lot, refugees, freedmen, and abandoned lands. And so that tells you who they really tried to serve as anyone who had those needs, who were refugees. Were they freedmen? Were they, you know, did they have their lands confiscated and they needed to get their lands restored to them? And that maybe was some of the case with some of the white Southerners at the time as well. So you will find a variety of ethnicities. These are not African-American only records, 
but you do see a, a lot of African-Americans who are documented in these records. And that's why it's so, so helpful. Absolutely. Well, and as we talk about here on the show a lot, that uh, anytime our ancestors interact with the government, you know, records get generated. And that's what you were talking about with these. And I think uh, you mentioned, and I think this is really important for anybody doing research is to realize this may be the first time we see first and last name for some of Mm -hmm. these free people. Isn't that true? Absolutely. You know, there's one um, a friend of mine reached out to me wanting help and was able to find her, you know, formerly enslaved ancestor for the first time with his full name in a labor contract uh, in, in Arkansas. And so that was for her, that was like, wow, this name had carried through, you know, to her family even till today, but to see where the origin of that name was. And then to find out that the origin of that surname actually comes from the person who enslaved her ancestor as well. But but that name has carried through and that she was able to find that name for the first time in the Friedman, Friedman Bureau records. Would it be safe to say that these types of records, and we'll talk about some of the you know, types of records that, that it generated, sure. but would these Friedman Bureau records um, potentially help people kind of get past that wall we tend to hit in African-American research? Yeah, absolutely. The 1870 brick wall, as as it's kind of known as, these form a bridge, if you will, and and in many instances allow people to break through that brick wall. This is exactly the situation that that I'm talking about, where now you've identified someone in a Freedman Bureau record who has a labor contract with a former, you know, planter, and now you see this connection in this relationship that you had no idea about coming in 1870, because all you saw in 1870 is the household and the census. And you don't know the relationship between those people who lived near them from the census record alone. But now looking at the Freedman Bureau record, you see these relationships that start to, to give you uh, a sense of direction and, and give you some hypotheses and things to, to further your research hopefully to get further, you know, back and, and identifying those ancestors. Oh, you can see why they're so important. Tell us, okay, so what kinds of records are we talking about? What Were there a variety of different records or was yeah. it like one, this is your document? No, they, they, they did, they did everything. So there's, there's, okay. you know, like I said, there's labor contracts, there's apprenticeship records, which was different than kind of a labor contract. Um, they, they solemnized marriages. In many cases, it was illegal to marry. So now they're, you know, the bureau officers are sitting with this couple saying, how long have you, you know, been married and, and how many children do you have and documenting that. Their education records. So they started Freedman schools and they listed the children that attended those schools. There's hospital records. Many were getting health care for the first time. There are court documents, there's records of complaints, you know, and, and, and grievances that happen in the area. There are ration records um, where, you know, they appealed to the Bureau for food and things like that. Mm. Um, so this really runs the gamut, like you said, in any way that they interacted with the government during this time, it was documented in these records. The majority, though, really was correspondence between the Bureau officers themselves and the state and federal um, offices. So there's a lot of communication and records where it's just transactional and talking about, like it may talk about, it may not be the records I'm, I'm talking about in the various types are all kind of the genealogical relevant, you know, ones, but there's so many others that also have additional information on individuals in them. 
like a letter from a commissioner to another one saying, hey, we serve this family today. They're going to be moving. We want to make you aware. And so here's a letter from one, you know, assistant commissioner to another assistant commissioner. Well, that gets me thinking about now. I know you put that project together. Was it back in 2015, 2016, where you were exactly. getting these records digitized, making them available? Right. So when you're, I'm thinking about some of this correspondence, um, as you were going through that process, were you able to extract who they were talking about or will people need to kind of dig in and just read it all for themselves and hope that they see something? You know, there's, there's two sides to kind of this. You mentioned the, the Freedmen's Bureau project, which mm-hmm. we kicked off in, in 2015 and, and finished in, in 366 days, actually, wow. <laughs> where we did, we, we kind of took from the records those genealogically relevant pieces and, and, and kind of put them in a project where we, people could index those digitized images and now make those searchable. And so that, that part of it <clears throat> made searchable 1,783,463 names, right? And so that, that's the searchable name part, but there's also pages and pages and pages of documentation that are still unindexed. Many people ask, did you do all the Freeman Bureau records? No, we didn't do all of them because we didn't do a lot of that correspondence where there still is some genealogical nuggets and, and breakthroughs that can be had. And so you'll have to use, you know, the finding aids and the, and the descriptive guides and pamphlets and go through and kind of look at those images. All of, the, all of those images are available online to view but not all of them have been indexed. And so it will take some, some research help and, and really spending the time in these records to get the most out of both sides. That's interesting. And I love that you mentioned finding aids because I think those are so key. If we understand the collection, then we mm-hmm. can better understand how to access it. So let's talk about access. Uh, I know mm-hmm. FamilySearch.org was such a driving force in all of this. And you have the, dis- is it discoverfreedman.org? Correct. Do they start? Should they start there, or should they just go straight to FamilySearch.org? Is there a difference? It, it depends on what you want to do and what you know, right? And so, for many people, just getting into the database and understanding what it has, going to discoverfreedman.org and, and seeing if you're if you know you have, for example, an ancestor that was in the eighteen that was enumerated in the eighteen seventy census, you may want to go to discoverfreedman.org and see if there are Freedman Bureau records for that ancestor. And that's a great way to start. The way it works on that website is actually you just put in a name, a first name and a last name, not even a location, and it will search all the indexed collections that we have available, including the Freedman Bank records, which was a separate entity than the Freedman's Bureau. And I can talk about that in a second, but it'll search all of those record collections together and then it will let you know where where that name appears and, and, and lets you kind of scour through that. And that's one kind of way to do it. And, and many people do that. We, we don't promote it very much anymore since the project's been over, but we still get lots of traffic, lots of people who are searching for their ancestors on discoverfreedman.org. But then you can also, if you know the locale or if you know the specific type of record that you're looking for, you can go on familysearch.org and just like you would you know, search our, our um, searchable record database and browse our published collections, you can get into individual collections there and start to do some research. And so that's usually if you have a lot more clues on who you're looking for and you're looking for a specific type of record, would be good to start at familysearch.org. But if you don't know, we always you know, say, go ahead, go to discoverfreedman.org and, and put in the name and see what comes up. 
It's amazing what can get accomplished when you pull together and how Family Search is able to um, pull together some wonderful volunteers. I mean, you did this in record time. It's really yeah. something. We had 25,550 volunteers that helped us with this project. And, and like I said, done in 366 days. I say 366 because we were trying to get it done in a year. And I remember that June 19th of 2016 was a Sunday. And so I didn't get the report for the completion of the project because we weren't in the office until Monday morning. And so I couldn't say that we finished it on Sunday because I didn't have a definitive record that showed it. So 366 days, 1,781,463 names from that project with those 25,550 volunteers. And I can't thank enough people right? because there were so many who were involved who, who have made this possible. Family Search may be, you know, have been the facilitator and, and tried to organize this, but really without the help of volunteers and, and, and you know, your listeners and, and folks who really are dedicated to this, we wouldn't have this treasure trove of records that we have today. So thank you very much to anyone who's listening. I'm sure there are many who probably participated in, wow, what a, what a treasure trove. Thank you so much for coming here today and sharing with us about these amazing records. I know everybody will be uh, interested to take another look for themselves at discoverfreedman.org or familysearch.org. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, and I hope this again helps individuals break through that brick wall and, and discover and connect with their families. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode, but before we wrap up, let's make a quick stop over at the Family Tree Magazine editor's desk. And look who I have found, Amanda Epperson. She's the e-learning producer at Family Tree University. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Doing great. Well, I know you've been busy over there at Family Tree Magazine, and um, I think the new thing coming up is the winter virtual conference. Tell us about that. Yes, Lisa, I've been busy working on our 2021 virtual conference, which starts on March 12th and runs until March 14th. Um, and I have a really great uh, slate of speakers lined up, including you, who will be giving um, a keynote speech on um, Saturday afternoon. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Those are fun because we do them live and there's there's interaction during the conference, right? There is. There are um, discussion boards where you can interact with people at the conference, like saying what surnames you're looking for, what's your favorite snack, and those sorts of things. There will also be live question and answer sessions, so you'll be able to post questions on the discussion board on a particular topic, and then we'll have our presenters answer those questions on live webinar, and then, then you can also ask additional questions, time permitting, at the end of that live session. So how many speakers and what kinds of topics can people look forward to? Okay, we have currently scheduled, I think it's 16, 15 or 16 speakers, plus yourself and the two people doing the question and answer sessions. They're in four different like tracks. So we have um, four DNA talks, some on methods and strategies, some on technology, using technology in your research, and then a few talks on um, researching immigrant ancestors. Wonderful. Now, when they attend, I know they register and everything, do mm -hmm. they then have to be there at a certain time, certain place? Can they watch these uh, videos on demand? How does all that work? The entire conference is virtual. So right now, as we speak, the presenters are busy pre-recording their talks so that you'll be able to watch them whenever you want. If you want to 
binge on genealogy on March 12th when you wake up at five in the morning, you can absolutely do that. The live sessions, which are the two question and answers and um, your keynote, those will be live and then posted to the conference afterwards in case they're in an inconvenient time for you. Yeah, that's really nice because having them on video, then you can kind of (laughs) fit them in around everything else that goes on on any given weekend and and still take it all in. Exactly. And if there's like at many conferences you go, sometimes I know I've had this in my mother, there's two talks you want to hear at exactly the same time. Yeah. You don't have that problem. You can watch them when it suits you. Awesome. And are there handouts? Are there notes? I know everybody scrambles to get their notes down during presentations. Yes, um, there will be handouts that you'll be able to print out ahead of time, which should have the key points and all the websites you would need to do the research mentioned in the presentation. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to doing uh, my cold case strategy mm-hmm. presentation because I think we've all got a brick wall we can try to bust. And certainly there's something for everybody. And like you said, kind of divide up into some different topic tracks. So, okay, well, where can they find out more information on how to participate? They can register at our website, so university.familytreemagazine.com, and then um, they would click on the Winter Conference image and sign up there. And we have a coupon code, virtualconf21, and I believe Lisa will put that in the show notes. So it's virtualconf21, all capital letters, and that would get you a 21% discount off the full registration price of $199.99, and it is valid until Friday, March 5th. Right. So we're talking about the 2021 virtual conference. And as Amanda said, I'll have everything for you in the show notes. Great. I'm looking forward to it. I look forward to seeing you there. Me too. Thanks for joining me for this February 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Now, if you're listening to the show through a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, will you do us a favor and leave a review? Your reviews are going to help other genealogists find the show. We'd love to have more folks joining us here, and we really appreciate the important role that you play in that. So thank you so much. As always, I will have links on the show notes page to everything that we discussed today, and you can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. You can visit me over at genealogygems.com, the home of the Genealogy Gems podcast and the weekly YouTube show, Elevenses with Lisa. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Mm -hmm.